Thank you, Matt. I'd like to have us turn to our text for this morning, uh, Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. Luke 9, 28 through 36, and that's on page 841 of the Bibles in the pews, if you're following along there. We're continuing our sermon series looking at Luke's gospel this summer. Uh, We've had to skip around a little bit in recent weeks, uh, but we're picking things back up in chapter 9. And this text follows immediately after a passage that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, um, where Jesus uh, actually, um, well, initially Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, and then Jesus does some teaching about what that means, that he is the Messiah, what kind of Messiah he's going to be, and then more specific for his disciples, what it means for them to be his disciples and disciples of, of that kind of Messiah. And so it's after that then that we get this text about Jesus' transfiguration. So Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. And this is what Luke writes. About eight days after Jesus had said this, after he's talked a bit about uh, himself as the Messiah, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke with him about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then I just love this comment that Luke makes. He sort of throws Peter under the bus and says, he did not know what he was saying. Who says the Bible isn't funny, right? While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud and said, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone else at that time what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, in the climactic scene of the classic movie, The Wizard of Oz, there's a timeless reveal. That's because after numerous encounters, mishaps, and close calls along the way, the main character in that film, Dorothy Gale, and her friends, the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, and the Cowardly Lion, finally arrive in the presence of the great and powerful Wizard of Oz. Each of them comes hoping that the wizard can give them something that they need. The scarecrow wants a brain, the tin man a heart, the cowardly lion courage, and Dorothy herself wants a return, a return trip back home to Kansas. But the wizard stalls. I'll have to give the matter a little thought, he says. Go away and come back tomorrow. It's at that moment, though, that Dorothy's dog, Toto, runs behind a nearby curtain and pulls it open, revealing a man working a number of levers and dials and speaking into a microphone. Flustered, the man quickly pulls the curtain closed as the wizard booms, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. It's too late, though. Dorothy and her friends confront the man and learn that he, in fact, is the wizard. For all his supposed power and greatness, it turns out that the Wizard of Oz really isn't a wizard at all, 
just the man behind a curtain. Not at all what Dorothy and her friends expected. Well, in the same way, there's a reveal here in our text for this morning, too. Like Toto pulling the curtain back on the Wizard of Oz, we see the curtain pulled back on someone here as well. That's because the curtain gets pulled back on Jesus in this passage. The only difference, though, is that rather than revealing him to be someone ordinary, someone mundane, someone not really all that powerful like the wizard is, Jesus is instead revealed to be exactly the opposite. That's because Jesus is revealed to be someone powerful here. He is revealed to be someone great. He is someone worth revering and even worshiping. You see, here in his transfiguration, Jesus is revealed to be nothing short of the very Son of God. And as we'll see in a bit, that revelation tells us at least three things about him. First, though, a brief note on humility. You see, I humbly think that this passage is one of the most mysterious and inexplicable passages in all of Scripture. And, and if you really think about that, that's saying something, right? After all, the Bible is, to a degree, an entire book of mysterious and inexplicable things. For starters, it tells the story of a God we can't see, can't touch, and can't experience like anyone or anything else. It tells us that this God created the universe by his word, that he lovingly and meticulously upholds that universe, and that he created us as human beings in his image from a combination of dust and divine breath. It then tells us that he gave us part of this creation that he made, this world, to steward and care for according to his will. From there, the Bible goes on to tell stories of elderly women and virgins giving birth, people rising from the dead, bread falling from heaven, and the Son of God himself becoming a human being. It also contains quite a bit about angels, demons, Satan, miracles, prophecies, predictions, and oh yes, a grand narrative of salvation. See what I mean? It's a book chock full of mystery and inexplicable things. And yet in the midst of all of those mysterious and inexplicable things, this passage stands out. It stands out because quite simply what goes on here in Luke 9 verses 28 through 36 is beyond our ability as human beings to comprehend. I think Fred Craddock puts it well in his commentary on this passage when he writes, we would very much like to penetrate the mystery of this experience, but we cannot. We would like to know what's going on here. We would like to understand. We would like to figure everything out. As post-enlightenment people who kind of operate in a scientific method, rational, logical sort of way, that's often how we approach our faith. We want to understand all of what goes on in Scripture. And yet we can't. Because this passage, this experience, this story of Jesus' transfiguration simply defies the neat, tidy categories that we often try to put our theology and our faith into. And so as we make our way through this text this morning, that's where I think we need to start. We need to start here with a degree of humility. We need to start by by reminding ourselves that we are not, in spite of how we might sometimes act or feel or operate, we are not God. And so we are never going to understand fully everything about him, everything about who he is, everything that we see here in his word. That said, there are at least a few things I think we can understand from this passage 
and what's going on here. In fact, I'd say there are at least three things about Jesus' transfiguration that Luke wants to show us here. Three things he wants us to see here. Three things he wants us to walk away knowing about Jesus so that we can truly know him better. And those three things are these. First, Luke wants to show us that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God. That's what he wants us to know about Jesus from this text. Second, because he's the incarnate Son of God, Luke wants us to see that it is through him, through Jesus, that we are saved. That's what Luke wants us to know about our salvation here. And then third, Luke wants us to see all of that. Jesus' identity as God's Son and his salvation of us as confirmed by God himself as the one who chose and commissioned Jesus to his work. That's what Luke wants us to know about Jesus' authority. So three things. Jesus is the Son of God. It's through him we are saved. And all of that is confirmed and validated by God himself. That's what we see here in this text. And so let's start with that first one. Jesus is the Son of God. I've told this story before, but a funny thing happened on my way to Peru in May of 2014. It was my first official vacation. I had just started working as a pastor at Brookfield CRC in Wisconsin, and I had a little bit of time off. And so I was heading to Lima, Peru to visit my sister, Shannon, who lived there at the time. Together with one of her friends, we had planned a trip uh, to Machu Picchu, which is one of the seven wonders of the world. And so I had just arrived at O'Hare International Airport for my first flight, and I was waiting in the check-in line for Spirit Airlines, which no one should ever fly, ever, by the way. And, uh, and that's where I met Benjamin. Benjamin was uh, just ahead of me in line. He had a giant backpacking backpack strapped to his back, a sweat-wicking headband wrapped around his closely cropped hair, and cargo shorts with more pockets than I think I could count. We got to talking, and he asked me where I was headed. I said, Peru, what about you? Same, he exclaimed. Where are you going there? I said, Machu Picchu. How about you? A look of wonder came over Benjamin's face. Yes, he said in a mystical tone, I'm going to Machu Picchu too. And then what seemed like a moment of stunned silence passed before he then asked, are you also going to sit with the shamans in the sacred valley? I looked at him for a moment or two to figure out if he was joking. And when I realized that he wasn't, I said, no, I didn't even know there were shamans. In fact, I didn't know there was a sacred valley either. Well, it turns out that there are. Both. There are shamans, and there is a sacred valley surrounding Machu Picchu, and that's because many people, Benjamin included, believe that Machu Picchu and the area surrounding it is holy, that it's special, that it's charged with spiritual power and significance. It's what some people like to call a thin place. Put simply, thin places are places in the world where people believe that the veil between heaven and earth is especially thin. In other words, they're places where people believe that the divine, the transcendent God, or whatever you want to call him, can more easily interact with us as human beings, break through that thin veil into our reality, and affect life here on earth. Uh, for instance, in addition to Machu Picchu, some other famous thin places would be Budanath in Nepal, the Muslim holy city of Mecca in Saudi Arabia, or pretty much anywhere in Ireland or Scotland. Um, apparently, if you go to Ireland and Scotland, you just can't get away from thin places. They're everywhere. And yet, as Christians, we don't really believe in thin places, do we? 
First, that's because as Christians, we don't believe that God is only present or available or near to us as human beings in certain special far-off places around the world. Instead, we believe, as we read in Scripture, that he is present and near to us wherever two or three are, are gathered in his name. As a result, Christians believe we're in a thin place whenever we gather together in worship. In fact, you could actually make the case that we are in a thin place right now. Because as God's gathered people together in worship, we believe that he is special or present with us here and now in a special way this morning. We believe something else as Christians, though, too. Which is that while we might not believe in thin places, we do believe in a thin place person. You see, rather than the veil between heaven and earth being especially thin only in certain places or in certain moments when we gather and worship, we also believe that that veil is thin in Jesus. Rather than a rooted physical place like Machu Picchu, he is where heaven and earth meet. He is where creator and creation come together. He is where the divine and human touch. I wish I had been quick enough on my feet to explain all of that to Benjamin uh, during our travels together. I wasn't, though. Uh, It's just another example of how my own evangelistic attempts don't always turn out as well as I wish they do. But that's what we see going on in this text, right? Luke writes, about eight days after Jesus had said this, predicted his death, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, The appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. What's going on here? Well, we're seeing heaven and earth come together. Creator and creation touch. The divine and the human come into contact, but not at a place, but instead a person. The person of Jesus. Again, like the Wizard of Oz, the curtain gets pulled back here. The veil tears. Heaven bleeds through. But rather than that happening in some far-off mystical location, we see it instead happen in Jesus Christ. His disciples, Peter, John, James, and those of us as his disciples today, we get to see another side of Jesus here, a different part of who he is, a glimpse of his divinity and glory. In short, we get to see the incarnate Son of God in this transfiguration. Whatever else is going on in this text, whatever else is happening, whatever else Jesus' transfiguration signifies or means, that's at least part of what Luke wants us to see here. He wants us to see the curtain pull back, the mask slip, the veil tear, and the humanity of Jesus fade away at least for a moment so we can catch a glimpse of his glory, a glimpse of his divinity, a glimpse of his true identity as the Son of God. My friends, that is who we worship. In fact, that is why we worship him. We worship Jesus because he's not just another one of us. He is something, someone, more. He's something else, too. He's also our Savior. And that's the second thing Luke wants us to see here, which is that it's through Jesus we are saved. 
to get at that, to get how to get at how Luke is showing us that here in this passage, we need to spend a bit of time talking about these two Old Testament figures who show up on the mountain with Jesus. Luke records their appearance in verses 29 and 30 here. He writes, As Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. First things first, taken together, Moses and Elijah are probably the two greatest leaders from the Old Testament. Uh, After all, Moses was the lawgiver and deliverer who led the Israelites out of slavery in the book of Exodus. After bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, uh, Moses brought them to Mount Sinai, gave them God's commands, and in a way sort of kick-started their entire relationship as a nation with God. Elijah, on the other hand, was the greatest and most revered of the Old Testament prophets. During his ministry, most of which is recorded in 1 Kings 17 through 19, he called Israel back to those commands that Moses had given them, cleansed them from their idolatry, and renewed their relationship with God. And yet the question remains, what are they doing here? Why do Moses and Elijah suddenly show up in the midst of Jesus' transfiguration here with him and his disciples on the mountain? Well, as Joel Green puts it in his commentary, Moses and Elijah, says Luke, were speaking with Jesus about his departure, which he was going to fulfill at Jerusalem. The word for departure is exodus, and Luke means us to understand that word in several senses. It can mean, like Exodus in the Old Testament, departure, going away. It can also serve as a euphemism for death, as when someone says, when I am no longer here, referring to their own death. But the reason Luke has chosen this word is that in his death, Jesus will enact an event just like the great Exodus from Egypt, only more so. In the first Exodus, Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and home to the Promised Land. In the new Exodus... Jesus will lead all God's people out of the slavery of sin and death and home to their promised inheritance, the new creation in which the whole world will be redeemed. In other words, what Luke is saying here is that Jesus is about to bring about an even greater act of salvation than when Moses brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. He's going to bring about an even greater renewal than Elijah did in his ministry. That's because Jesus is going to lead us out of our slavery to sin. He's going to deliver us not just from physical bondage, but from spiritual bondage. He's going to restore us not just to obedience and submission to the law, but to God himself. All of that, then, is confirmed here by God himself. That's the third and final thing Luke wants us to see in this text. As he writes in verses 34 through 35 here, while he, Peter, was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Each of the gospel writers does this in different ways, but something that all the gospel writers are careful about is making sure to depict Jesus as legitimate. 
What I mean by that is that the gospel writers don't want Jesus to come across as a lone ranger, off on his own, doing his own thing, trying to justify himself or, or uh, legitimize himself. Rather, they want it to be clear to everyone who reads their work, both back then as well as today, that Jesus is only doing what his Father has called him to do. In other words, that's where Jesus gets his authority. That's where he gets his validity. That's what legitimizes and authenticates him as the Son of God. It's the fact that he's chosen by God, loved by him, and given the work that he was called to do by God. And this here is part of how Luke makes that clear. Matthew does it by depicting Jesus as fulfilling numerous Old Testament passages. John does it through the seven signs he records Jesus performing and the seven I am statements he records him saying. Luke, both in his gospel here and the sequel book he writes, the book of Acts, does it through supernatural occurrences. And so that's why he records what he does here. Jesus is transfigured before his disciples. The curtain is pulled back, the veil tears, they catch a glimpse of Jesus for who he truly is as the divine Son of God, and then God himself speaks. This is my Son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. So three things we see here, three things Luke wants us to understand, three things he wants us to walk away from this text knowing about Jesus so that we can know him better. First, he's the son of God. Second, he's come to save and deliver us from our sins. And third, all of that is confirmed by God himself speaking here. It's eventually confirmed in another way, though, too. And that brings us to the gospel this morning. Again, I think Joel Green puts it well in his commentary when he writes, The glory which they, Jesus' disciples, had glimpsed on the mountain, the glory of God's chosen Son, the servant who was carrying in himself the promise of redemption, would finally be unveiled on a very different hill, an ugly little hill outside Jerusalem. You see, we certainly do see Jesus' glory here in his transfiguration. But this won't be the last time we'll see it. That's because, as Green says, we'll eventually see it again at the end of this gospel on a different mountain. That's because in chapter 23 on a hill called Calvary, we'll see Jesus transfigured again. It won't look the same as it does here. Rather than bright and shining, it'll be bloody and somber. Rather than his prayer being answered, the Father will instead turn his face away. Rather than the confirming voice of God, the only voice we'll hear crying out then is Jesus' own voice. And yet his glory and power will be there all the same. Nailed to a cross, lifted up, crucified for our sins, Jesus will again show us who he truly is. And who is he? He's the Son of God. He's our Savior, our Redeemer, our Messiah, and our Lord. He's the one come to do God's work and lead us into salvation. That's what Luke wants us to see. That's what he wants us to see here It's what he wants us to see at the end of his gospel, too. In fact, it's what he wants us to see through everything that he writes. He wants us to see Jesus for who he truly is. And despite the mystery, 
the challenge of it, the inexplicable nature of it all, that is what we see here. We catch a glimpse of Jesus. The curtain pulls back. The veil tears. And we get to see our Savior here in all his glory. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for your revelation. You have revealed yourself to us in so many different ways. You reveal yourself to us in your word. You reveal yourself to us through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. You have revealed yourself most clearly in your Son. Thank you for him. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for how we get to see your glory, your salvation made manifest in him and how we get to receive that salvation ourselves through him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.